The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. Out of your heart, say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call insight your intimate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. For at the window of my house, I have looked out through the lattice, and I have seen among the simple, and I have perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, and at the time of night and darkness. And behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward, and her feet do not stay home. Now in the street, now in the market, she is at every corner, lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him with her bold face. She says to him, I have had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love, for my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey, and he took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home. Which much, with much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her, as an ox goes to slaughter, or a stag is caught at fast, till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare, and he does not know it will cost him his life. And now, O sons, listen to me, and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn sideways to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim she has laid low, and all her slain are mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. You may be seated. If you were in kindergarten through fifth grade and you would like to go to the children's church, please join our volunteers over by the Kids Zone sign. Good morning again. There's our kiddos. They're going to be headed right out that door. Run. <laughs> Run. Uh, Rollin always jokes with me that whatever passage in the Bible is steamy, it's always her turn to read when it's, um, I swear, that's just the Lord that works that out so nicely. <laughs> um, I want to c- mention a couple of things before we dive into this passage, and it's um, important but my notes are out of order, and I don't want to try and do that later when I'm talking, so let me get them in order. Uh, that looks pretty good. Okay, here we go. Now we're set. Um, two things I want to tell you before we uh, explore this passage together. Uh, the first thing is, uh, it could it could fall on our thoughts. We could think that uh, because the woman in this passage is the temptress, that this is really about 
uh, how seductive women can be and how really, you know, when someone is dragged off, it's the seductress's fault, it's the woman's fault. That's not at all the case here. Um, it's an analogy that he's using, which he knows will land with his original audience. But just so you know that it's not like the women are the bad temptresses and the men are the vulnerable ones, uh, in this passage, he's going to refer to wisdom as a her. And then over the course of the next couple of chapters, it's going to have a conversation of uh, kind of which one will you follow, lady wisdom or lady folly. So I don't want us to mistake, even at the outset, that this is about tempting women or how women are more tempting than men. It's an analogy of course, about how sin is. And we're going to talk a lot about the sexual side of temptation. Uh, But really, the other thing I want to tell you is, this passage is kind of easy to keep at bay unless you concentrate on your own temptations. So I'd love for you to bring to your mind the things that tempt you. Whatever sin that might be. Pride, whether that's lust, whether it's envy or greed. Um, whether it's just self-sufficiency, what are the things that you are so tempted by? And I want you to hold that before yourself while we talk through this so that you'll be able to apply what I'm saying about how to interact with temptation to your specific temptation. Otherwise, it'll fall a little flat. So with those things in mind, the fact that this is not a, a, a uh, hit at women for being seductresses and the fact that uh, I want you to hold your particular idolatry, your particular temptation in your head. Let's pray and ask God to bless our study of his word this morning. Lord, would you have mercy on me, a sinner? I pray and plead for your Holy Spirit to move. I need your help. We all need to be uh, challenged and encouraged uh, from these passages. And if you don't move, then we'll stay the same. And we want to be changed. So would you please, by your kindness and grace, move among us. Challenge those that need to be challenged. Comfort those who need to be comforted. And point us all to uh, Jesus. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. When I was in college... I was addicted to pornography, and I kind of would let Aaron in on some of that, and I would say, yeah, lust can be a struggle, lust can be distracting, Um, but I secretly had in the back of my mind that when I get married, I'm not going to have this same struggle because marriage will fix lust, and then I won't have this anymore, so I kind of downplay it to her and sort of wrestle through, do as well as I can, but I know that marriage is going to fix this struggle for me, and so I won't have to worry about it long term. And then Aaron and I got married and moved to St. Louis, and I began seminary. And about four months into marriage, being newlyweds, my sin is beginning to creep up again. One night we were out to dinner, we were in this fun neighborhood in St. Louis, and we went to a Mexican restaurant, and we were sort of at this, this stage of the meal when you're enjoying margaritas and enjoying maybe chips and queso or chips and salsa, and in comes our server, and she is beautiful, but I act like I don't notice, and Aaron says, 
oh, she's cute. And like a wise husband, I say, who? Who's cute? And she goes, oh, come on. And it's like the thought of me and other women and thinking about them kind of all flashed on her at once. And she looked at me and said, hey, do you ever still struggle with that thing you struggled with in college? And my eyes flashed with tears. And then her eyes flashed with tears. And we sat there silently. You see, what I had concluded is that if I just get married, it'll end my problem with temptation. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning, this idea that as we are tempted, we have to be careful. That we think our temptation is about some sort of season of life, and once you're out of that season of life, it'll go away. So diminish it, minimize it as much as you can, and eventually you'll age out of some of these temptations. Hugh Grant in 1995, many of you know the name Hugh Grant. He's a famous actor and part of many, many uh, romantic comedies that you've seen. And he's charming and he's winsome. And in 1995, he was famous because he was on Hollywood Boulevard and he was caught with a $10 a night prostitute. Now, what's so significant about this story, too, is that Hugh Grant at the time was dating Elizabeth Hurley. Elizabeth Hurley, if you don't remember, she was one of the most famous models at the time. And so here Hugh Grant is, the top of his game in all the romantic comedies. He's dating a supermodel and driving down Hollywood Boulevard, and he gets picked up with a $10 prostitute. A few weeks later, he was actually scheduled to be on Jay Leno, and Hugh Grant walks in, and everybody cheers, and Jay gets up and shakes his hand and sits him down. And you could just feel the tension in the room. Is he going to mention it? Is he not going to mention it? And Jay says, I just have one question. What the H were you thinking? And the audience erupts. As if, Hugh, you didn't need this. How could you, who are at the top of your game, a millionaire and dating a supermodel, how could you, of all people, done this? And what I tell you that for is because when we look at people who fall in the world, in our culture, in our churches, if we look at them and say, how in the world could you have done this? How in the world did you let this happen? What were you thinking? What we're doing is we're trying to distance ourselves from the sin, but what we're actually doing is drawing so near to the temptation. Because we're saying, essentially, I couldn't do that. I may not be perfect, but I wouldn't do that. And you're taking your hand off of the cross, which empowers you for godly living, and somehow putting your hand around your own resolve. What it's saying to us this morning is that temptation is hunting you and hunting me. That you're not going to age out of temptation, that you're not going to uh, deal with it a little bit and it'll go away. That it needs constant attention and that we are vulnerable if we don't think we are vulnerable. 
In my backyard, some people have this in, in, in Lookout Mountain, but in my backyard, there's bamboo. It's the weirdest thing in the world. You walk out into my backyard and it's covered with bamboo, which you think would be at some tropical location, and it's actually gorgeous to look at. The only thing is, it never stops growing. I can leave for 10 days, and when I come back, it'll be creeped into the yard like knee-high. To have bamboo, you have to constantly cut it back and treat it and cut it back again. And that's the picture he's giving to temptation. Is you, can't, you can't be non-vigilant for even a moment. You have to keep cutting back and keep treating it because it's coming for you. Well, let's look first at this target. Who is the target of this temptation? Look with me in verses 6 through 9. For I, at the window of my house, I've looked out through my lattice, and I've been seen among the simple. I've perceived among the youths a young man lacking sense, passing a long street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and of darkness. So who's the one who's going to be targeted in this one? It's the one who does not know they are a target. Who's the one who's going to be targeted by temptation? It's the one who does not know that they are the target. This guy is simple, he's, he's young, he lacks judgment, he's impressionable. And it shows us right there, he's lingering where he should not be. Look with me in verses 7 and 8 again. Passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house, in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. He is lingering where he should not be. And that speaks to us. He's vulnerable. He's vulnerable because he doesn't know that he's in a place of trouble or in a context of trouble or with people who are trouble. And he's lingering around in the wrong places. And if you're like me, when temptation gets to you, it's when you're lingering at the wrong time of night or lingering with the wrong person or you're lingering with the wrong substance. You're lingering. You're playing somewhere that you would be wise to not be there. My parents used to say, nothing good ever happens at midnight. Do you know that phrase? Nothing good ever happens after midnight. And I hate legalism so much that that phrase used to bother me. I'd be like, no, that's not true. You could be like sharing the gospel with somebody at one in the morning. Or like you could give online to missionaries at two in the morning. But no one ever does that. Nothing good happens after midnight. That's, that's not really a chronological principle. What it's saying is, is be careful. Don't linger where you shouldn't be, where you're vulnerable, where it's dangerous. Did you see it in the text? Three times. In the twilight. In the evening. In the time of night and darkness. He's saying, friend, it's getting dark. And you know what that is for the temptation in your life that you've thought of. Those places and those things and sometimes those people where you are lingering. And metaphorically, it is getting dark. You're getting more relaxed with the idea of giving in to temptation. You're lingering where you should not be, where you're vulnerable. His, her sin in this is she doesn't care. 
She says, my husband, he's out of town. Let's, let's go. Let's do this. But his sin is naive neutrality of what it looks like to live in a world like this. Meaning she, yeah, she's looking for trouble. He's just wandering around outside of her house. He's got this sense of everything will turn out. Everything will be fine. I'm not going to get myself into trouble here. And what that teaches us is that we have to be careful. If something causes you to sin, take a step back from it and realize what was the context, either time of day or substance or an individual or a group of individuals, what was the context that led you to that point? Because if you're trying to deal with the temptation in the moment of temptation, you have already lost. This kid's already lost and he doesn't know it yet. What it's telling us is to be aware that we are vulnerable, each one of us. That when we hear about sin in the church and sin in the culture, that we genuinely should think, but for the grace of God, there go I. When someone confesses sin to me, I say, thank you for trusting me with that. I could have done that or something like it. You see, the church was supposed to be the place where you could come and say, there's something wrong with me. There's something the matter with me. And unfortunately, often the church, you would never come and say that. You're too scared that you'll get hammered by somebody who's a know-it-all, somebody who's super religious. If there's one thing that I want to be true of this place that we're working to plant is is that you can come in here limping as you are and you can share sin with me or with the staff or with our leaders women and men and you can share with us and that you will be treated with grace and that someone will walk with you because we know what it's like to disobey we know what it's like to sin we know what it's like to be addicts Of all places, we should look at sinners and go, we get it. We are it. You're safe here. And we'll help you with what has helped us in the past. And we'll need your help when it's our time. But instead, the church has become this place where if you don't pretend that temptation is behind you, you're too sinful. And yet he's speaking scripture to us saying, of course you will be tempted. Of course you will be tempted. The biggest target is the one who doesn't know that they're a target. You see, some of us are just naive about sin. We linger in the wrong places in the wrong times. Maybe with the wrong substances, maybe with the wrong person. We linger And then we're surprised when we fall. But there are some of us, and I've been in this stage too, there are some of us who are toying with the idea of sin. We're not just lingering. We are taking steps actively towards our temptation. We're moving near it. I just want to know what it looks like. I just want to know what it tastes like. I just want to know what it feels like. I'm just going to get a glance. Not too much, just the right amount. Some of us think as long as we don't get carried away, we'll be okay. The scripture here says, you will get carried away and it'll happen all at once. 
And I want to tell you this. Some of you have been trying to fight your temptation on your own for far too long. Far too long. I have never made progress in battling with a sin ever by myself. It always happens in the context of community. Because as she is whispering to us temptation, we need other voices whispering to us honesty and grace and truth. And so come and talk to me about it. Come and talk to Ben or the staff or the lay leaders at this church. Please come and say, I'm struggling. I'm, something's wrong. And we have to have that kind of brutal honesty. If, if I were to teach my sons, you have to be careful of the wayward visual images of the world. And my sons, you have to be careful of particular women who don't believe the same things you do. But what do I say when I say, son, you have to be careful with the monster inside you. That it's not women's fault, and it's not the internet's fault. It's your fault. And it's my fault too. You see, we've tried to blame our sinfulness on the things around us. And what he's saying is, the only thing that you can steward is yourself regarding temptation. Martin Luther once said, it's not your fault if a bird flies over your head and catches your attention. But he said, it is your fault if that bird is making a nest in your hair. You see, he's the target. He's simple. He lacks judgment. He's lingering in context that he shouldn't be lingering in. So come and share it with a person who loves Jesus. I know that sounds so scary to you. But come and share it with a person who loves Jesus. Because a person who really loves Jesus knows how hard it is to fight knows that each of their own fights have ended in failure often. And knows that the shame that is driving you to be quiet is so much worse than the addiction itself. A truly godly person can can walk with you and say, I get it. I am capable of this or something like it. Let me just give a quick word to spouses too. Spouses... These are hard things to wade through. But when your husband or when your wife comes to you with failure, either because they're caught or because they come and confess, it would be tempting to say, how could you do this to me? How could you? What kind of person are you? And that person will wilt from the shame and they will go underground But imagine if when your spouse comes to you in failure of whatever temptation it is, and they look at you and say, thank you for telling me, thank you for trusting me, this really hurt me, but I love you and I'm not going anywhere, and I hope and trust that you're going to go talk to somebody about this, that you're going to get the help that you seem to not be able to get from me. Can you imagine if when a spouse came, instead of being shamed and someone put their finger in their face and tell them how terrible they are, their spouse took a bucket of grace and washed it all over them? How motivating is that? To say, I'm still loved. I'm still accepted. I can try again. 
Ultimately, that's what we'll find in the gospel. I'm still loved. I can try again. So who's the temptress? Verses 10 through 12. Behold, the woman meets him dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She's loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, at every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him and with bold face says to him, I had to offer sacrifices and today I have paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly. And I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home. He has gone away on a long journey. Who is this temptress? This adulteress? This lady folly? This wayward life? She looks lovely and sounds good. She lies lurking in 10 through 12. Dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart, she's loud and wayward, her feet do not stay at home. Says she's crafty. What does it mean that she has a crafty heart? It means she doesn't make her intentions known yet, early in the text. You see? At first, she's just showing herself to him. And it looks good, lovely. What I want you to get out of that is your temptation will not come up to you and scream at you, Hey, I am sin! I'm here to wreck your life! It won't do that. It's crafty and subtle. Just a little longer. Just a little more. It's just a little phone call. It's just a text. It's just a direct message. It's just a lingering conversation in the side of a restaurant. It's just a kiss. Nothing more will happen. Your sin will not say, look at me, I am sin. It's crafty and understated. They'll say, hey, I'm not trouble. This is no big deal. Honestly, I wouldn't even worry about it. So it goes crafty. But it also goes loud. Do you see? She's loud and brazen. Meaning your ears will have a hard time hearing wisdom because temptation is getting so noisy. It looks so good. It's so appealing and enticing and it's so loud that you won't be able to hear what is wise and good for you. That's part of why we want to gather with Christians who we trust and who are safe so that they can still speak into our lives when temptation is getting so loud. And you see the tactic, tactics she uses. It's this brazen approach. She comes and grabs him and kisses him. The reason I tell you that is we think that if we can just stay neutral, just stay in the middle. Maybe we're not always good, but if we can just stay in the middle, meaning if I'm not going after sin, I'll be okay. False. Sin is hunting you. It is hunting your marriages. It is hunting your late nights. It is hunting your relationships and your friendships. The Bible says the devil moves around like a roaring lion looking to destroy and to kill. 
It's hunting you. You can't be passive. You can't say it's no big deal. It's not just going to go away. Some of you think you will age your way out of your temptation or life stage yourself out of temptation. But as we already talked about, sin is still hunting, hunting constantly. So it's brazen and it's crafty. And sometimes it comes in legitimization. Listen to this. 14. So what tactic I had to offer sacrifices and today I have paid my vows so now I come out to meet you. Meaning sometimes it'll say, hey, I did good stuff. I'm, I'm a good person overall. This is just a little thing. This is just a little allowance I give for myself. I've still done good stuff. And you're sort of legitimizing why it's okay because of what you're about to do. The good of my wife the good of my life outweighs the bad, and so it's okay that I have this. Think about it. When you give in to sin, and how often did before you give in to sin, you think, I haven't done this in a while. That legitimization, I'm getting better. This doesn't really count. So it can be aggressive. It can be subtle. It can work through legitimizing the other good things that you can do. It can come through flattery. You're desired. I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly. I have found you to seek you. There's so much in temptation for us in being flattered. We want to be noticed across a room, across a restaurant, notice at CrossFit, notice at yoga. We want to tell the joke that everybody in the room laughs with, that we make eye contact that lingers just a little too long. We want to be noticed. And what's so sad is that when we're not getting it from our marriages, often we go to get noticed somewhere else. And the marriage isn't the only problem in that, but it's part of the problem. Are you noticing your spouse in an encouraging, affirming, beautiful, desiring way? Or are you just expecting that they'll be fine? And for the spouse who's going out and stepping out, you're looking for something that you're supposed to look for at home. You're supposed to pour your life and heart and soul into home so that that's the place you can receive those things. Are you doing that? Flattery, you're desiring. I wanted you. I wanted you. So many men are enticed with this one. We don't plan to do any actual sinning. We just want to be liked. We just want to be laughed with. We just want to be noticed. I asked Erin what it's like for, what, what it can be like for women to experience this. And she said, for women, it's so often this fantasy life of her head of your head. This, I may not be addicted to some sort of substance or whatever, but the things in my head that I long for, that I want for myself, how am I nourishing those and and giving myself to those? I once met in a different city a man that I helped break up a Facebook affair. Essentially, a Facebook affair in this context is something that a man had found an old flame on Facebook and it started out with friendly banter and then it had gone to direct messages and then it had gone to texting. 
And they never even saw each other. They never even got together. But he said the reason that it, he came and confessed this, he brought it out into the light. And he said the reason that it was so sad to him is he was going for a 5K and his wife and kids are standing at the end with signs, we love you, you can do it. And he said even though they're standing at the, sign, at the end with the signs and the love and the affection, he couldn't wait to get to his phone to see what this woman had said about his race. And he said, I've got the real thing, and I'm going to trade it in for something of much less value. We do that. He says, you won't be disappointed. Listen with me in 16 through 18. I've spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till the morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. What she's saying to him and what temptation says to us is, come on, you will not be disappointed. You won't get disappointed. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be great. Just give in. Just take a little bit. Okay, take some more. And it says you won't be disappointed. And it says you won't get caught. Here in the text, she says, my husband's gone. And we know that. We know that part of the temptation is to hide ourselves. You won't get caught. You know how to delete your text messages. You know how to delete your direct messages. You know how to delete your internet history. It's that I I can't get caught. I'm safe. No one's ever going to know. In this persuasion of smooth words, 21, with much seductive speech she persuades him. All her smooth talk she compels him. All at once he follows her. There's this smooth words. This will give you more life than Jesus. This will be good for you. This is okay. This is understandable because of all that you've been through. And it calls for us. You won't be caught. You'll never know. Just listen. Listen. See if you recognize this voice in your heart. It's not that big a deal. Just try it. Try a little. A little more won't kill you. You deserve this. You've been hurting so badly and no one's taking good enough care of you. You've faced so much. No one was there to meet your needs. This is all I ask of you. This is the only thing I need. We'll be good the rest of the time, but this little thing is the only thing I need, and it's not that much. It's just a little looking, a little emailing, a little call, a little coffee, a little dinner, a little kiss. It's just a little. You see, she comes in brashly, and she comes in subtly. She's hunting him. It comes after us, enticing us. You won't be disappointed. Please listen to my smooth words, and all of a sudden... All at once he follows her, as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast, till an arrow pierces its liver. A bird rushes into the snare. He does not know that it will cost him his life. If you sit with a man who's had an affair, as I've done, so much of the time you will hear this. I don't know how I got here. Meaning you don't wake up on a particular Tuesday and go, I think I'm going to burn it all down today. I'm going to nuke my life this morning. It was made five years before that. 
and three years before that, and one year before that, and two weeks before that. And then all of a sudden, caught, and it costs you your life. The ox is slashed, the deer is noosed, the bird is caught. They're all dead. They're promising life and they're delivering death. Friends, sin is hunting you. It wants you to fail. The devil roars around like a lion. Sin says you're going to give in anyways. Why not? Holy Spirit says, I'm going to provide you a way out. Sin says, this looks good. It's going to be good for you. The Spirit says, what is good for others? Sin always tells you that it's not that big of a deal. It's just a little. No one's going to know. And the Holy Spirit wants to grow you and change you, and so says it is a big deal. Sin is always promising you the easy path, and Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. You've got to be able to hear the differences, hear the different voices. What is the voice of the Holy Spirit and Jesus What is this voice of temptation? Your flesh, the devil. You have to be able to hear the difference. I use this illustration often, but it was so helpful for me. Sinclair Ferguson is a famous American theologian, and he once, he's always asked, because he's been in the the country for like 27 years, he's always asked, Sinclair, when are you going to become an American? He's got this amazing Scottish accent. Sinclair, Sinclair, when are you going to become an American? And at one point, he was asked that at a press conference, and Ferguson said, I am a Scotsman. Why would I want to be an American? And he was being playful. But he uses that same idea in how to deal with your temptation. It's that you have to condescend to your sin. You have to call it what it is. Because here's what happens. Your sin goes, hey, do this. It'll be fun. There's, it's not going to hurt anybody. It's just a little. It's going to be so great. It's going to be so good. Or I guess I could be holy. You're never going to win that argument. Never. What if you were able to condescend? We may not say I'm a Scotsman. But we say, I am a child of the living God, accepted, bought, forgiven, and I have plans. I have great plans to worship God forever in heaven with me. And I've got this thing, this call, this person, this coffee, this text, and it's going to bring people I love pain, and it's going to hurt, and it's not who I am, and it's not what I want. Do you see how you do that? You elevate your real identity and you poke a bunch of holes in your temptation it's calling for you that it's good and that holiness doesn't matter you flip the script in real time it helps me if i say it out loud and you hold up your identity the audacity of your identity and you mock that sin meaning you could even come to a point where you'd say even if i give in Even in this moment, if I lose this battle, even if I fail, he'll still love me. Why would I want to do anything else? Why would I want to serve anyone else? This thing, if I give in, is going to shame me and mock me. And if I give in here, he's going to love me and speak grace unto my life. So what do you need? You need vigilant attention. My son, my sons, 
He keeps crying out in this. He says, fighting temptation isn't walking right up to the cliff and trying not to fall off. He's saying, fighting temptation is running the opposite direction. Get away from her house. He's saying wisdom is better than temptation. It may not always look like it, but it's better. It's a treasure. It's a wardrobe, verse 3. It's your family, verse 4. He says, immerse yourself in wisdom. Immerse yourself in being clinging to Jesus, in putting good habits in your life, heart fighting and habit level fighting. It's not one or the other. What you linger about in your thought life passively will work its way into your life actively. What you linger about in your thought life passively will work its way into your life actively. Let me give you a small example of this. If when I'm driving in my car, it's about the only time in the day that I'm alone, and if I'm driving in my car and I'm rehearsing Erin's imperfections, not that she has any per se, but I'm rehearsing and saying, ah, that's controlling and she's so frustrating and ah. And then when I go home, what's my attitude going to be like? But if when I'm driving around in my car, I say this wonderful woman who loves Jesus and is raising my five animal-like children, (laughs) and she loves me, when I go home, what am I going to be like? You see how you have to Think about what you think about so that you're better prepared to fight along the way. What you linger about passively will force its way into your life actively. This is keep your steps away. Verse 25. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray. It says be careful. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee with you. It takes daily and weekly and monthly and yearly attention. You have to fight and repent and fight and pray and fight and repent. Because otherwise it'll cost you. Do you see it? For many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. There's just corpses everywhere by temptation. There's corpses in this room by temptation. Every single last one of us is saying, slow yourselves down. This is going to cost you more than it's telling you it's going to cost you. Slow down. So you fight. But ultimately, we're all laid low. We're laid low. Every single person in this room, myself the foremost, we're laid low. So if the whole point is to fight, but if you don't fight, if you give in, if you mess up, you're on your own, then I'm breaking your hearts. But those of you who trust in Jesus, he bears the weight of giving in to temptation, even though he never got to taste the fruit of it. He went the highway to the death, to the grave, so that you wouldn't have to. I want you to think back on the time you last gave in to sin. And you're there and you're fighting it, and you're praying and hoping, and maybe I won't, maybe I won't, I'm going to try and do better. And then you fail. You break promises and you drop the ball right there. I want you to think about Jesus, how he experienced that moment. When you're fighting the temptation, he's never giving in. 
Never making excuses. Never giving up. Never getting the fruit of temptation. And the moment you fail or I fail, He signs His name to the sin. And gives you His perfect record. He held out when you gave in. He kept promises when I broke them. He took death so we could take life. Why would we want anything else? Let's pray. And gives you His perfect record. He held out when you gave in. He kept promises when I broke them. He took death so we could take life. Why would we want anything else? Let's pray.